I will admit up front that John is my favorite gospel. He tells me what I need to know and then takes me by the hand and says, okay, here is what I meant by that. Or what Jesus really meant here was this. I love him for that. But why couldn't he have started his gospel the way the others did? Matthew gives us Jesus' earthly genealogy, then tells us the story of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus in a shorthand, just the facts, ma'am, kind of way. Mark skips the birth narrative altogether and jumps right into Jesus' baptism at the start of his ministry. Luke, as you know, gives us this beautiful poetic narrative of the prophet, the prophetic fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah. He is masterful in his ability to pull us into the lives of those involved, their joy and frustration, their way of understanding their fear in the midst of their faith, to be comforted by the angels and praise and and to praise and glorify God in the highest, along with the shepherds. And then there's John. And it gets so complicated. It is hard work studying the scripture, and anyone who tells you it isn't is only reading the Bible and not really studying it. Digging around in there and asking the hard questions and struggling with the truths the Bible has to offer takes time and energy. And I, for one, am grateful for a place like this one that not only allows the study and struggle, but encourages it. But back to John. John begins begins his gospel in what seems to be a most logical place, in the beginning. He begins in the beginning. And then he spends the rest of his gospel telling us about Jesus, showing us his miracles and explaining the parables and walking us through Jesus' last days, making sure that we understand his love and passion for us. But John wants us to understand from the beginning who Jesus really is. Let me introduce him, John says. The word began, well, the word really never began. The word has always been since before the beginning, before creation was, the word was there. As creation was coming into being, the word was there. As creation has existed, the word has always been. John is trying to build his case so that his contemporaries, the Jews and the Greeks and the Christians of the first century, understand who this Jesus is. For the Greeks, the concept of the word was a way of gathering and ordering things. The word was a way to think things through, so ultimately reason things out. For the Jews, the word was not so much an expression of thought as it was a powerful action. The word was directly connected to the deeds and actions. John needed to connect the presence of the word with a capital W, with the reasoning, orderly nature of God and the act of speaking creation into being. And so he, in doing so, he was establishing that the word has always been, giving him a title like the Christ or the Son or the Son of Man couldn't convey that concept. John wants to be clear that while the word was with God, the word was God, 
He wasn't talking about an Austin Powers image of me and mini-me, God and mini-God. He says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word, this Logos, is eternal, an existence outside the bounds of time and history. You cannot trace his true lineage to a time or place when he did not exist. The word was, was God. There is no beginning. He has always been. Now this is where their eyes and our own get all crossed up because we just can't quite get a handle on that concept. We have always lived under the confines of time. We have never known what it's like to live outside those bounds of time. We may fantasize about being able to turn the clock back and do it differently or to speed time ahead and just get on with it. But time is our reality. I have a clock in every room of my house, in my office, in my car, on my wrist. It is a rare point when I don't have some idea about what time it is. And even as I wrote the sermon, I am well aware that I have a block of time to fill. If I'm too short, well, then some of you are going to be real pleased about that, but <laughs> others will think I haven't lived up to my obligation. If I'm too long, y'all will get antsy and stop listening. We live in the confines of time, but before the creation of time, there was the word. Okay. Got it. In the beginning, of which there is no such thing, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Got it. Great. And then John shifts. His writing goes from second and third person, the Word, he, him, to the first person, plural. He shifts from observational to confessional from resume reading to storytelling. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. The word moved from eternal to temporal, and John moved from an outside observer to one with firsthand experience. It has just become personal. Let me tell you about this word become flesh. Although he will hold you in suspense for 28 verses, John finally names this word made flesh as Jesus. Just so you don't confuse him with somebody ordinary or try to compare him with somebody else, the eternal one has just put on flesh and stepped into the boundaries of time. Now that you know who I'm talking about, says John, let me tell you about the difference that he has made in this world. We run smack into the flesh, the person of Jesus, full of grace and truth. But the Jews had always lived under the letter of the law. Do all the do's and avoid all the don'ts and you were in good shape. That kind of mindset has followed us through the centuries and to today. Don't drink, smoke, and chew, and don't go out with girls who do. 
<laughs> Even we sophisticated, intelligent believers of the 21st century continue to run up against the paradox of the grace and truth, the forgiveness and the second chances, the mercy and abundant life of Jesus, and the do's and don'ts, the rights and wrongs, the no margin for error letter of the law. Just when we think we've got it down and understand what to do, Jesus comes along and blows it all out of the water. And John points right at him and says, trust him. Listen to what he says. Do what he does. Because of who he is, you can trust him. But trusting can be hard especially when we come face to face with those who revert back to the letter of the law, convinced it's God's will. In his lecture after receiving the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002, former President Jimmy Carter said, the present era is a challenging and disturbing time for those, for those whose lives are shaped by religious faith based on kindness toward each other. We have been reminded that cruel and inhuman acts can be derived from distorted theological beliefs as suicide bombers take the lives of innocent human beings draped falsely in the cloak of God's will. When the word becomes flesh, it gets personal. I have a friend named Stephanie Kaiser, who is a house leader for Habitat for Humanity in Denver, Colorado. She was the go-to person, the one the contractors dealt with and everybody reported to. She loved it and was really good at it. There were two other staff people about her age who continually badgered her for dating a coworker who was not a professing Christian. They told her that she needed to work on her relationship with God because if she were walking the straight and narrow, she wouldn't be dating a non-Christian. They were constantly in her face trying to convince her that she couldn't be a good Christian and date Chris. They believed they were justified because, as they said, we Christians are to judge each other to keep ourselves on the right road. On top of all of this judging going on, Stephanie is working, was working really hard to convince Chris that not all Christians are like that and that this Christian thing was something he should consider. Chris and Stephanie would read the Bible together from time to time, a big step for Chris. He would ask the hard questions, and Stephanie did an incredible job of walking him through it. But too often, as it was with Chris, when the word becomes flesh, it is not full of grace and truth. It's harsh and judgmental. When the word becomes flesh in us, is it full of grace and truth? Can we recognize when it is and when it isn't? Do we recognize when we are living out of the letter of the law 
or out of the love and faithfulness of God. My mother, our mother, my sister's over there, is a longtime member of her church and her Sunday school class. Her class is made up of older ladies who have been together since Noah got off the ark. They are the mainstay of that church. My mother, at least until this coming Friday when she moves to Henderson, is a mover and shaker of that class. Not long ago, their teacher was approached about hosting a baby shower for a young teenage girl in the church. The teacher brought this question to my mother. This teenage girl didn't have much support from her family or friends as she was young, unmarried, and now pregnant. The church hosting a baby shower for a girl like that? My mother's response, absolutely yes. We will host this baby shower after all, this girl needs all the support she can get right now. And so they did. When God put on flesh and came to show us how it's supposed to be done, how we are supposed to live out God's plan, Jesus wasn't grandiose about it. It wasn't done with grand gestures or pomp and circumstance. Jesus lived day to day, living out his ministry in a loving, caring way, just being who God created him to be, not needing to make a big show of it, not needing to judge, just needing to show us the true nature of God. I had boarded a plane from Greenville, South Carolina, where I lived and worked as a staff person at First Baptist Greenville to fly back here to my aunt's funeral. Aunt Mary was my favorite aunt and the woman I was named after and I was preaching her funeral. As luck would have it, I was assigned the middle seat in a row of three seats barely big enough to maneuver. I took my place between a woman who was a, about 50 or so on the aisle seat and a man in his mid-thirties next to the window. After takeoff, I lowered my table and got my, my notes and my Bible and was going to finish the funeral service. The window man leaned over and said, personal study? I said no, that I was preaching the funeral service for my aunt. So, you're a preacher. I'm one of them, I said. I was trying to keep my focus on what I was doing. Well, I think that the only reason God has women preachers is because there aren't enough men willing to step to the plate as the spiritual leaders they're supposed to be. <laughs> Needless to say, I wasn't in the mood for any theological discussion on women in ministry. Defending my calling to this man was something I didn't really want to do right then, but he wasn't gonna let it drop. So I asked him what he did for a living. I don't remember what he said, but it wasn't pastor or minister of anything. I still think if men would seriously take their jobs as spiritual leaders, then God wouldn't need to use you women. 
I took a deep breath and I said, well, here's my take on that. I believe God created me with some pretty cool gifts and abilities. And I don't believe for one second that I was called to serve God as a minister because God ran out of men who would step to the plate and had to resort to calling in women as second strength. Conversation pretty much ended there. <laughs> and I went back to working on Aunt Mary's funeral service. As we exited the plane in Evansville, the woman on the aisle seat who had not said a word the entire flight turned to me and said, I'm sorry to hear about your aunt. And the word became flesh and lived among us. James tells us to be doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. That's where the word becomes flesh. John keeps telling us that trust him. Listen to him. Do what he does. You know who he is. Edmund Burke, an 18th century Irish philosopher and politician, said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. When our flesh reflects the word, the gospel good news of Jesus Christ, the world is different. It has to be. God's grace and truth God's love and forgiveness are so incredibly powerful that it can't help but change situations and change lives. I came upon a website the other day. You may have heard of it as well. I know Nibby, Nibby um, is familiar with it. It's called Do Good, all one word, D-O-G-O-O-D. <laughs> Three student entrepreneurs at the University of Michigan thought they could use their phones to make the world a better place, one download at a time. Therein was the birth of a free iPhone application called Do Good. Subscribers are prompted daily with a task of doing something good. It can be as simple as conserving water or as powerful as connecting with family members. Once they have accomplished their task for the, for the day, they click on the application's done button. It allows folks to talk about the, the things they have accomplished for that day. And in response to being prompted to, to connect with a family member, one subscriber wrote, I connected with my estranged brother after more than two years of silence. Another said, I called my sister who I only talked to during holidays. The out of the blue conversation was a pleasant change for us. One other do good task was to leave an inspirational message in a public place. One writer said, I left a post-it note in the bathroom mirror at work. You are awesome. Subscribers are also encouraged to suggest daily tax, tasks to be posted. It is such a simple concept, 
as co-founders suggest, it makes people think. People need an opportunity to reflect on their own lives. It makes you reflect on who you are and what you're doing. I will add that I hope it would encourage us to also reflect on how we have been blessed and point us to the God who has blessed us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. May it be so in us today. Amen.